So good morning to you guys. And man, you're here. When the weather changes in Iowa, what I have noticed is when a Sunday is nice after a few bad days, sometimes some people choose to do other things and you did not. I appreciate that. And I know that when there's sacrifice, there's great reward. And I know that because you're here this morning, God has something in store for you and you're gonna be happy. If you're not already happy, you're gonna be happy that you're here. I have, man, good Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, and you already know we have exciting things planned next weekend, but sometimes I think we don't focus on or think about the week coming up to Easter nearly like we should. And I've been thinking about it all week this week, and I wanted you to think about it as well because I feel like the next seven days we have an opportunity to, to really lean in and to live like Jesus. Now, I wanted to start you off just by letting you know, uh, I'm kind of setting the stage, uh, the context of where we're going to be this morning, uh, and just let you know right off the bat that it's going to be a hair uh, different, and I know I've said this a lot over the last seven or eight weeks in our series, a hair different, where this morning really is almost a a review or a reflection back on some of the most significant things that Jesus did uh, in his life in the book of John. And it's a challenge this morning for us to live like Jesus did, but it's not just a challenge from me to you, it's a challenge from Jesus to us, a challenge from Jesus to his disciples, and something that you and I can challenge each other in as we prepare to leave this place and and go and live for him. Now, last Thursday, Joy and I had a thing that happened uh, at our house. And it was a minor thing, but sometimes when it's just the two of you and, and uh, you know, you have things that happen, you can choose when these things happen, whether they become minor things or major things. They can become things that you chuckle over and go, ha ha, that was funny. Or it can become things that you give each other the cold shoulder for a little while and end up having to apologize for later. I'm happy to say this was one of the, the things that you just sort of chuckle over and move on, but it was yet still a thing. Now, I like things to be... Um, where they're supposed to be in, in, in my house. I, I like them to be where they're supposed to be. Now, you might say, well, where are they supposed to be? I don't choose that. I don't have to choose where they're supposed to be. I just know where things are, and I like them to be that, at that same place when I need to go find them or, or look for them, and so to me, that's where they're supposed to be. So several years ago, when we moved into our house, um, Joy put a trash can in the bathroom, and the trash can... If you're facing the toilet, this is probably too much information for you guys, around the corner from the shower, on the right-hand side, there's a little trash can, little toilet-sized trash can, little bathroom trash can. It's got a little bag in it, you know, and and you throw whatever in there, and it's always there. Right there, there's two walls, which make a great backboard, and uh, and then then the the toilet. And we were getting ready for work on Thursday. I had a handful of trash. I had my contact lens cases with some water in them and some other stuff. And so I just walked into the bathroom. Joy's getting ready at her side of the sink. And, and uh, I just, I didn't look. I just reached around the corner and I just threw the trash into where the trash can's supposed to be. And I heard the trash hit the ground and of course stopped in my tracks. And I looked around the corner and the trash can was gone. Now it's supposed to be there right? I don't care who put it there in the first place. I don't care if it's there or if we choose to relocate the trash can. But if we choose to relocate the the trash can, that should be a conference. We should all be on the same page where we know the trash can's been relocated. Everybody gets the email, the memo, and we know where to throw the trash. It didn't happen that way in our home. And so I'm like, Joy, where's the trash can? And she just, you know, didn't really answer. So I walked out into the, the bedroom and there it is sitting in the middle of the bedroom floor and the bag is out of it. 
And so at that point, I knew I had to be careful because after all, it's not Joy's job to empty the trash can. We don't have those kind of jobs in our house. It's just whoever happens to be nearest the trash can when it's full gets to empty it. And I didn't want it to become my job forever. But I said, what's the deal with the trash can? I said, um, it's missing. Why is it in the bedroom? And she said, well, I'm, I'm in, emptying it. I'm in the middle of it. I'm in, I'm in the middle of that. So I looked at her and said, how can you be in the middle of it if you left it there in the middle of the bedroom with no bag in it and you're doing your hair? And she goes, no, no, I'm not done yet. I'm in the middle of it. I'm doing that. And so me now as a wise husband who's learned over the years, I said, yes, sweetheart, of course you are. I went and picked up my trash and I put it right there in the trash can in the middle of our bedroom. Now, sometimes somebody doing something looks a little different to the people who are watching. Sometimes you're just in the middle of that. Sometimes what looks like it should be done and done quickly takes a little bit more time than you think. I think that's where the disciples were with Jesus. I think that's where their minds were when we pick up on this event that happened as Jesus entered Jerusalem, preparing for this final week of his life before he died and rose again. And his disciples were asking these questions. Aren't we done? Aren't we done? And Jesus says, almost. I'm in the middle of that. Just wait. We'll be done soon. This has become a tradition for me. Maybe not for you, although if we've been together for several Easter's, it's now traditional for you too. This passage of scripture is one that I love to start off with every single Palm Sunday because for me, it sets the tone. I need reminders. I am super basic. I think sometimes I'm growing in my faith. I'm walking with God and I feel all great about myself. And then I remember there's some of the most basic things that I don't even get right. And so Jesus with his disciples, with me, with you, takes us right back to the center, right back to the middle, right back to the simple things and reminds us. And this is a beautiful reminder. Now, I'm not going to go back and break this down for you. We've done that before time and time again. But I do want to remind you of this passage, and then we're going to do something fun together this morning. This passage, this story happens when the disciples are focused on an objective, when they have things going on, when they've got their to-do list you know, already in their phones, and they're checking it off, and their calendar, their reminders are beeping, and they're, they're task-oriented, and they're motivated, and they're pulling Jesus, maybe even literally, up the road from Jericho to Jerusalem and said, now we're going to take over Rome, now we're going to take back our country, now we're going to be back in power, now we're going to get paid, and, and Jesus knew they didn't understand. Now, you and I are the same way. We get so focused with our own agenda, with our own to-do lists, our own thoughts, our own calendar reminders, and we oftentimes forget that the kingdom of God, that the purpose of life, that the focus, our focus, isn't out there. It's right here. And so Jesus, as they're literally pulling him up the road, does something mind-boggling, familiar to you and to me, but it's going to be our springboard to jump off this morning as we try to apply and try to live the way that Jesus lived. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving that city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped, 
stopped what he was doing and said, call him. Now, here's what I want you to focus on and think about. I want you to think about the fact that the disciples had other things to do, that they had an other list, a preoccupation, a focus, an agenda, and Jesus did something that you and I fail to do many, many times, and that is he stopped. He stopped, he noticed, he engaged. Stopped, noticed, engaged. In the New Testament, there are other gospels, the places where this story is told. The disciples even rebuked these men who were bothering Jesus, according to them, and said, Jesus can't be bothered with your begging. You happen to be an unfortunate. You happen to be somebody who's been cast off on the side of the road. Not our fault, not our problem. We got kingdom business to attend to. And you think, who would be that cold and that heartless? But they had been programmed to be that cold and that heartless because the Jewish belief system at the time, taught to them by Pharisees and teachers of the religious law, said if somebody had something wrong with them, it's their fault. They had it coming. It was either them or their parents who sinned. Leave them be. Let them suffer the consequences of their action. Unfortunate as it might be, they got used to looking past people who were in need. So Jesus stopped Jesus noticed, and Jesus engaged. So we're going to rewind all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And I'm going to talk to you about just a few times when Jesus did this, when he stopped, when he noticed, when he engaged. And I want you to understand that when he stopped and noticed and engaged, he didn't do it with any strings attached. He didn't do it with any kind of return on investment or expectation. He literally did things for people who could do absolutely nothing for him in return. And yet, sometimes you and I think we're such great Christians, but we don't live that way. So this morning's a reminder, and it's a reminder by looking at literally the footsteps of Jesus as he steps through this New Testament, his three-year ministry in the book of John. The first one, the wine, I have these alliterated because it helps me as uh, I teach these, the wine, the well, the wanter, the woman, and the water, but the wine is the first one. Now, we've talked about Jesus' first miracle. It's a phenomenal miracle. It's a time when Jesus had just started his public ministry, a time when his disciples were, finally, we're going to go do something. What's it all about, Jesus? And they're watching, they're listening, they're waiting to, to get involved. They think maybe there's some fights coming. Maybe there's some spirited debates. Maybe there's some kind of political overthrow. Maybe it's just going to be an argument. Maybe it, they don't have any idea, but they're waiting, they're watching. And Jesus goes to a wedding and he stays for a week and his disciples may have said, Jesus, why would we go to this wedding? Nobody cares about this couple. And Jesus may have said, I do. Well, how long are we going to stay, Jesus? Because weddings are long. Are we just going to blow in and blow out? We're going to stay the whole time. Why would we stay the whole time, Jesus? You've got things to do. Perhaps Jesus looked at them and said, come here, fellas. You're going to learn this over and over and over again. There's nothing more important than things like this. So Jesus stopped, he noticed, and he engaged. Participated in the wedding, unknown couple in a tiny little town on the backside of nowhere, and they had a problem. They ran out of wine. It was humiliating. It was scandalous. It would have been something that people would have talked about forever. How could somebody possibly have been such a bad host? So Jesus, as we know the story, created wine from water, and he did it to bless this couple, and then Jesus left. Why? 
one of the next stories that we see in John chapter four is the story of Jesus. And he goes into Samaria, a town where Jews weren't even supposed to go. Jesus was being harassed by the Jewish leaders and just kind of took a little, a little detour. And he went and he sat down by a well and he met a woman who would never have been talked to by most of the teachers and religious leaders of the day. She'd had a rough life. She was from a people who they didn't like. She was from a background they didn't approve of. She'd made choices in life that would have made her, well, she would just, yeah, well, she would have been a person who had been added to the prayer chain and not a person who had been included in the prayer chain. A person who people would have whispered about but never actually whispered to. And Jesus sat down and began to talk to her. He stopped. He noticed. He engaged. And he offered her a second chance. He offered her fresh life. He offered her a whole different perspective. And she went back and she shared with the people who she loved. And they found Jesus. And you wonder, why did he do it? Because Jesus just he slipped away. And we said, could this be a pattern? Could this be something that we're supposed to pay attention to? Could it be something that you and I are supposed to do? And we come to this next story, and this next story is one where I want us to really to pay attention to and to focus on, because it's one of my favorites of these right now. And this story is called The Wanter, and it's found in John chapter 5, 1 through 11. I want to read this to you, and I want us to track together as we move through this one, two more, and then really apply this, and I challenge you to go and live in a different way. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, the house of mercy. Now if you guys have been studying your Bible and you just want it to uh, add to your biblical literacy, there's another place that's called Bethsaida, and that means house of fish, and that's not all what we're talking about right here. Bethesda, or this particular pool, is um, the, the uh, Bethsaida, excuse me, is the house of mercy. It's surrounded by five different porches, and these porches were filled with people who had some kind of handicap, who were unable to take care of themselves. If you visualize it, five different porches around this pool would have been a lot of real estate, a lot of space. And there would have been mats and stretchers and people who were just strewn all over the side or the shore of this pool. And one who had been there for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition, Jesus asked him a question. Do you want to get well? Now, you might ask why they were laying by the pool. And if you ask that question, I would want to tell you. There was a tradition, and some people believed this tradition so much, they tried to slip it into Scripture and some of the earliest uh, manuscripts. They believed that the angels would come from time to time and stir the waters of the pool. And if the waters of the pool had been stirred and a person could get into the pool while the waters were being stirred, that they could be healed. And so this man felt like that his problem was that he wasn't able to get into the pool when the waters were being stirred, and it had been 38 years of frustration and futility and people walking past him and nobody even noticing and nobody even caring. So when Jesus saw him, Jesus stopped Jesus noticed, and Jesus engaged. And he said, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. Now, the great part of this story is that if, if you had the opportunity to ask Jesus for something, and Jesus noticed you and your pain and your sickness and your disease and your need, 
This guy just simply asked Jesus, give me a shove to the front of the line so that I could get in the pool before the rest of these people. Sir, I have no one to help me when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But the man replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. This man who was healed didn't even have any idea who it was. Because Jesus stopped, he noticed, he engaged, and he slipped away. Well, you continue the story of Jesus. We see the woman who was caught in adultery and brought before the religious leaders. And Jesus noticed as he stopped, and he saw that this woman was being used as a point, as a prop, ready to die for something that, yeah, she did, but man, it was messed up, applied in all the wrong ways. So he stopped, and as he noticed, he went over and put his arm around this woman, stood beside her, even got down in the dirt with her, wrote something nobody knows what he wrote, had compassion on her, and said some amazing words to these religious leaders holding rocks ready to throw them at this woman, and he said, hey, if any of you haven't sinned, go ahead and throw the first rock. Now, Jesus put himself in harm's way, set himself up for ridicule, allowed himself to be judged because the person was so much more important than the point that the religious leaders were trying to make. So he stopped, he noticed, he engaged, and then he slipped away. Finally, we see Jesus in John chapter 13 meeting with his disciples and as he met with his disciples in the upper room, they realized they had a problem, that they, they needed to have their feet washed. And so Jesus wrapped a towel around his arm, picked up a basin, and went and washed the disciples' feet. Opened himself up to humiliation, to judgment, to scrutiny. Well, you're Jesus. You're supposed to be the Son of God. Why would you be serving us? Why would you be washing our feet? And Jesus, without saying it, said it. Because I chose to stop. I chose to notice. I'm choosing to engage. But this time, instead of slipping away, he tells his disciples, I'm not going to be here forever. And there has to be somebody left who's willing to live their life this way. Will it be you? Oh, the disciples said, of course it will, Jesus. Of course it will. You can count on me. I'll never turn my back on you, Jesus. I'll do exactly what you say. We'll live this way. And we know the story. We've even talked about it in the last few weeks. The disciples scattered and had to be recollected. But Jesus' pattern repeats itself. So simple, so profound. You and I miss it all the time. I've asked myself this question this week. Do I stop? I stop when it's convenient. Sometimes I stop when I think about stopping. Do I notice? I notice sometimes, but I'm really good at trying not to see. 
Do I engage when my schedule allows, when there may be some benefit to me? I hate to even admit that out loud to you, but in in my worst moments, that's not me. I'm not the guy who stops, who notices, who engages, who slips away without thinking about return on investment, without wondering how it's gonna impact me, without worrying about what happens. And Jesus says, if you wanna get it, you gotta live it. And I'm not gonna be able to because I'm gonna be gone, and if you don't do it, people aren't gonna see how powerful this gospel is. Are you willing to stop? Are you willing to notice? And are you willing to engage? Jesus reinforces this with a great sermon, one of his last. And you and I are gonna talk about this quite a bit over the next five weeks after Easter. It's a sermon where Jesus is talking about final judgment. And the reason that's important to you and to me is because one day we're going to answer for what we've done in this life. What we're going to answer for is the decision we've made about Jesus and then how we chose to live our life. And this is an excerpt from the middle of this sermon. You and I are going to talk a lot about this. You'll hear much more. You'll understand the context. We're going to drill down and break it down. There's so much here, but I'm picking up in verse 34. Then the king will say to those who are on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And then Jesus goes on to say, when you do these kinds of things to the least of these, you're doing these things to me. And as I read that, and I let it settle on my own spirit, I realize that when I choose to live this way, that it's like I'm literally living this way and doing these things for Jesus. So my question is, why wouldn't I? And my question to you is, why wouldn't you? Very clearly, Jesus says, this won't save you. But this kind of living, this kind of preoccupation, this kind of focus, this is evidence that you've been saved. Because a believer who chooses not to stop, who chooses not to notice, who chooses not to engage, a believer who's always calculating return on investment, always having strategic relationships, always an agenda, always in an angle, always, it's a believer who doesn't get it. And Jesus says, are you brave enough to live with no strings attached? Here's my challenge for you. And the challenge is super simple. In honor of Jesus, in preparation for Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning, there's the buildup, isn't it? Isn't that official? It's supposed to be. I want to get your attention here. I don't want you guys just to, to, to forget this. I don't want you to read this and to dismiss it. I don't want you to say, yeah, Rick, that's a good idea, but probably not for me. I want you to try this on. I want you to wear it for a minute. I want you to think about what it might look like in your life. And my challenge is, is that we actually do this. And maybe for some, we live in a different way. In honor of Jesus, in preparation for Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning, Do something this week for someone who can do absolutely nothing for you in return. 
Don't worry about changing the person. Watch for the change that happens within you. Because your heart will become softer, your eyes a little sharper, your mind a little bit more spirit-focused, your attitude and spirit a little less judgmental. You may find you're even more approachable, and you'll have the opportunity to back up these actions with the gospel. But we never make it sometimes to being able to share our faith because we failed to love and serve the world around us, showing them who Jesus is before we ever open our mouths to tell them. Now, I wanna challenge you in two ways. The first way is, in this particular time period when this was written, the kinds of things that the author is talking about were very contextual. But I don't want you just to think about people who you may serve, who you may do something for, who can do absolutely nothing for you in return in ways of people who are out there or over there or standing by the off-ramp or living down under the bridge. I want you to think about the people who are right here, the people who are closest to you, the people who you influence, the person you saw at the breakfast table this morning, maybe the first person you see when you walk into the office tomorrow. Maybe the person you'll text this afternoon. Maybe the person that you run into at the gym. Maybe somebody who you sit next to at one of your kids' games. Are you brave enough to live like Jesus? Now, here's Jesus' pattern. Show love and then explain the reason. Now, I wanna finish with this because it's so powerful and so profound and this is one of the reasons why this story is my favorite. Later, Jesus went back and found this guy who he had healed, the superstitious guy who believed, by the way, more in magic than he did in miracles, who would rather have Jesus push him in the water than actually heal him of his own infirmity. Jesus went back and found him and he said, see, you are well again. Stop sinning, live a different way, or something worse is gonna happen to you. The men went away. Now, this is the part that I like. Jesus went back and shared the truth. He shared the gospel, encouraged him to live a different way, encouraged him to turn from his life of sin, encouraged him because he's earned that right to speak to him for the guy to hear him and to know that he loves him. And this is what the guy did. The man went away and turned Jesus in to the Jewish leaders and said, this is the guy you've been looking for. He's the one who made me well. He's right over there. Jesus healed him anyway with no concern about what he was going to get in return. Even though he got turned in to the people who wanted to kill him by the very person who he had served so graciously and compassionately. And Jesus continued to do it again and again and again. Because friends, that's the only way our world sees the power of the gospel that we claim to believe. So we have seven days, five days before our Good Friday service where we celebrate and really focus on the death, the, the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus. And then another couple days before we celebrate Easter, the resurrection. And my challenge is between now and then, would you try to live this way each day with me?
Father, thank you for my friends, and 